This podcast may contain graphic or explicit content that may not be everyone's cup of tea. Viewer discretion is advised. A blue station wagon drives down a winding road in the rural countryside. Fading streetlights reflect off of the three passengers' faces every so often to illuminate anxious looks, almost as if they are worried they will get caught. Out of nowhere, a gang of cars begin to follow the station wagon, kicking up dust from the calm rural roads. The car directly behind the station wagon gains on them, inching closer and closer to their rear bumper. The driver of the station wagon signals for the car to pass, but it continues to tailgate. The passengers grow worried and fear confrontation, which is only made worse when the truck aggressively rear-ends them. A red light begins to flash from one of the vehicles, signaling for the station wagon to pull over. The caravan pulls into a deserted dirt lot where all three passengers of the station wagon remain in their seats. The driver insists that the passengers relax and they will all be all right. Not one, but several men approach the driver's side window, one of them asking if the driver thinks he can drive at any speed he pleases. The driver breathes a sigh of relief, explaining, quote, You had us scared to death, man. The man replies that the driver should not call him man and in turn calls the driver a Jew boy. The driver asks what he should refer to the man as, and the man tells him not to call him anything and insults the black passenger in the back seat. He sniffs the driver, claiming that he smells like an, quote, in lover. The driver brushes him off, exclaiming to the front seat passenger that they will be fine. You don't want him seeing your face, another man exclaims, before the aforementioned man says that it makes no difference and places a gun to the driver's head. He then pulls the trigger, catching the two passengers off guard. The scene cuts to black with white block letters that read, Mississippi, 1964, as three more gunshots are heard and the gang of men laugh. Thus begins the story of 1988's Mississippi burning and the true story of the Freedom Summer murders. This is Crime Cine. Late at night on June 21, 1964, Michael Schwerner, Andrew Goodman, and James Cheney were released after being arrested earlier that evening for a speeding violation in Neshoba County, Mississippi. They were on their way back to Meridian after investigating the Mount Zion United Methodist Church in nearby Philadelphia. The Congress of Racial Equality, also known as CORE, sent the three to investigate a Ku Klux Klan attack on the church, which was being used as an education and voting information center for CORE. This was just one of many civil rights organizations that were campaigning across the southern United States in 1964 for black individuals to register to vote, henceforth known as the Freedom Summer. The three were due to arrive in Meridian around 4 p.m. When that deadline passed and the three men had still not been heard from, CORE notified the COFO Jackson office to let them know they had not returned from Neshoba County. They continued to call local authorities but did not learn anything of the three's whereabouts. They were never seen or heard from again. J. Edgar Hoover originally wanted the FBI office in Meridian, led by agent John Proctor, to begin an initial search when the men were reported missing. However, U.S. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy turned up the search and ordered an additional 150 federal agents to come in from New Orleans. The FBI originally offered $25,000 in reward for information on the case. This reward money would equate to $208,157.26 in 2020. Two days after the boys disappeared, their blue station wagon was discovered burnout near a river in northeast Neshoba County along Highway 21. 
Upon the news, FBI Major Case Inspector Joseph Sullivan traveled to Mississippi with hundreds of Naval Air Station sailors from Meridian following shortly after. The discovery of the burnout car prompted the case to therefore be known as Miburn or Mississippi Burning. During the search for the activists, the bodies of Charles Eddie Moore and Henry Hezekiah D. were discovered. The two college students had gone missing in May of that year, but because they were black, media attention lost interest and the case against two suspects was later dropped that November. 14-year-old Herbert Orsby and five other unidentified black individuals were also discovered, but once again, the media chose to focus on the activists. The case rocked the nation as America stayed glued to their TV sets for any updates on the case of the missing civil rights workers. President Lyndon Johnson met with the parents of Goodman and Schwerner and Walter Cronkite called the disappearance, quote, the focus of the whole country's concern. Neshoba County Sheriff Lawrence Rainey was quoted as saying, they're just hiding and trying to cause a lot of bad publicity for this part of the state. Mississippi Governor Paul B. Johnson Jr. also did not seem to be concerned, saying the men, quote, could be in Cuba. 44 days after the men went missing and the extensive investigation by the FBI and National Guard had begun, a tip was put in by an informant known as Mr. X as to where to find the men. The bodies of Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney were discovered 14 feet below ground in an earthen dam on a local farm southwest of Philadelphia. Schwerner and Goodman had each been shot once in the heart. Cheney, the lone black man, had been severely beaten, castrated, and shot three times. Goodman was also found to have fragments of red clay in his lungs and in his fists, suggesting that he might have actually been buried alive. James Earl Cheney was born on May 30, 1943, in Meridian, Mississippi, as the eldest of Fannie Lee and Ben Cheney's five children. At 15, James and his classmates sported paper NAACP badges to their segregated school, but were all suspended for one week due to the principal's fear of retaliation from the all-white school board. After school, he worked as an apprentice in a trade union with his father, before participating in his first freedom ride from Tennessee to Mississippi in 1962. Cheney had always been interested in nonviolent demonstrations and volunteering, which inspired him to join Meridian's chapter of CORE in 1963. He would go on to organize voter education classes, introduce fellow CORE workers to local church leaders, and help transport workers around the county. He caught the attention of Michael Schwerner, who was also working for CORE in Mississippi, and Cheney in turn met with the leaders of the Mount Nebu Baptist Church to gain support for Schwerner. James Cheney was 21 when he was murdered. Andrew Goodman was born on November 23, 1943 in New York City and was the second of three boys born to Robert and Carolyn Goodman. Raised on the Upper West Side, Goodman and his family were known in and around the area for their intellectually and socially progressive activism. He graduated from Walden School in Manhattan and went on to attend the honors program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He stayed in Madison for one semester before withdrawing due to a bout of pneumonia. After his recovery, he enrolled at Queens College in New York, where he was a friend and classmate of singer-songwriter Paul Simon. While he originally planned to study drama due to his experience in off-Broadway productions, Goodman switched to anthropology, though he soon left New York to develop his civil rights strategies at Western College for Women, which is now part of Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Andrew Goodman was 20 years old when he was murdered. Michael Henry Schwerner was born on November 6, 1939 in Pelham, New York. He was described by family and friends as friendly, 
good-natured, gentle, mischievous, and full of life and ideas. He loved athletics, animals, poker, W.C. Fields, and rock. Schwerner was a childhood friend of Robert Reich, who later became the U.S. Secretary of Labor in 1993. Reich fondly remembered Schwerner as protecting him from bullies when he himself was picked on for being small. As a teenager, Michael attended Pelham Memorial High School, where he was affectionately known as Mickey to his colleagues. After graduation, Schwerner attended Michigan State University to become a veterinarian, but transferred to Cornell to study rural sociology. While at Cornell, he was a member of the Alpha Epsilon Pi fraternity, an organization based in Jewish principles. Schwerner soon became involved in corps and civil rights activities in the early 1960s and married fellow activist Rita Levant in 1962. They eventually found themselves based in Mississippi, becoming the first whites to be assigned by corps permanently outside the state capital of Jackson. Michael Schwerner was 24 years old when he was murdered. Following the discovery of the activist bodies, the FBI did extensive research into local KKK chapters to see if they could have been responsible. By November of 1964, they had accused 21 men of arranging a conspiracy to, quote, injure, oppress, threaten, and intimidate the three men, most of them being apprehended by December 4th. The following individuals were detained. 50-year-old mobile home operator Bernard Aiken, E. Aiken, who I cannot confirm, but I'm assuming is Earl Bernard Aiken's senior, Bernard Aiken's son. I found an obituary for an Earl Bernard Aikens Jr. of Meridian, who also owned a mobile home business, and his grandfather was listed as Bernard Aiken. 27-year-old commercial driver Jimmy K. Arledge, 36-year-old garage owner Travis M. Barnett, 71-year-old Philadelphia police veteran Other N. Burks, who went by Otha to his friends, 34-year-old trucking company owner Olin N. Burridge, 39-year-old White Knights founder Samuel H. Bowers, who was not detained but was implicated the following year. 30-year-old White Knight investigator James T. Harris, who went by Pete. 46-year-old drive-in operator Frank J. Herndon. 39-year-old Baptist preacher Edgar Ray Killen. 28-year-old mechanic Billy W. Posey. 26-year-old Neshoba County Deputy Sheriff Cecil R. Price. 41-year-old Neshoba County Sheriff Lawrence A. Rainey, 26-year-old salesman Alton W. Roberts, 21-year-old pulp wood supplier Jerry M. Sharp, 31-year-old commercial driver Jimmy Snowden, 17-year-old garage worker Jimmy L. Townsend, 36-year-old building contractor Herman Tucker, and 54-year-old grocery store owner Oliver R. Warner, also known as Pops. Mississippi refused to prosecute these individuals for the state crime of murder, so the federal government charged 18 individuals under Section 18 of the United States Congress, Section 242 and 371, with conspiring to deprive the three victims of their civil rights by murder. Sheriff Rainey, Deputy Price, and 16 other men were indicted, but the charges were dismissed six days later by a U.S. commissioner that declared the confessions on which the arrests were made as hearsay. One month later, government attorneys secured indictments against the conspirators from a Jackson federal grand jury. However, on February 24, 1965, federal judge William Harold Cox dismissed the indictments against all but Rainey and Price on the ground that the other 17 were not acting, quote, under color of state law. The United States Supreme Court overruled Cox in March of 66 and reinstated the previous indictments. 
Defense attorneys then made the arguments that the original indictments were flawed because the grand jury was chosen from a pool of jurors with inadequate numbers of minorities. The government chose not to fight this claim and summoned a new grand jury from which, on February 28, 1967, they won re-indictments. The trial of United States versus Price began on October 7, 1967 in Meridian under the segregationist judge William Harold Cox. Seven white men and five white women were selected for the jury while potential black jurors faced abrupt challenges. A white man admitted to the U.S. attorney from Mississippi that he had previously been a member of the KKK and was challenged for a cause, but the attorney denied him. Star prosecution witness James Jordan couldn't handle the numerous anonymous death threats that he had received and was at one point hospitalized. The jury deadlocked on its original decision and Judge Cox chose to uphold the Allen charge to bring them to resolution. This is from the 1896 Allen v. United States case, which upheld, quote, there is no error in a jury instruction encouraging dissenting jurors to reconsider. Seven defendants were eventually convicted, thus representing the first ever convictions in Mississippi for the killing of a civil rights worker. Those found guilty in 1967 were as follows. Cecil Price, Samuel Bowers, Alton Wayne Roberts, Jimmy Snowden, Billy Wayne Posey, Horace Barnett, and Jimmy Arledge. None served more than six years in prison. Cecil Price served four and a half years of a six-year sentence and died following a fall from a piece of equipment on the job on May 6, 2001 at the age of 63. Samuel Bauer served six years in prison for his crimes and was later sentenced to life in prison for the 66th murder of Vernon Dahmer in Hattiesburg, his sentence coming 32 years after the crime. He was also accused of Jewish target bombings in Jackson and Meridian in 1967 and 68, according to the man convicted. He died in the Mississippi State Penitentiary Parchman Hospital of cardiopulmonary arrest on November 5, 2006 at the age of 82. Alton Wayne Roberts was sentenced to 10 years in federal prisons for his crimes, but served no more than six and was freed on appeal bond. He also gained national attention in 1965 when photos were captured of him beating up CBS cameraman Lawrence Pierce outside the federal courthouse in Meridian during his trial. He died on September 11, 1999 at the age of 61. Jimmy Snowden was sentenced to three years for his roles in the crime, but only served two. When he was released from prison, he returned to trucking jobs in Meridian and died on July 7, 2008 at the age of 74. Sheriff Rainey was acquitted, while Sheriff Candidate E.G. Barnett and preacher Edgar Ray Killen were not retried after the jury came to a deadlock on their respective charges, despite both being strongly implicated in the murders by witnesses. It was revealed on May 7, 2000, that the reason the jury deadlocked in Killen was due to the fact that one juror stated she, quote, could not convict a preacher. In 1985, 21 years after the murders, screenwriter Chris Geralmo discovered an article from the book Inside Hoover's FBI, which chronicled the FBI investigation of the Freedom Summer murders. He became fascinated with the case and eventually turned a draft script over to producer Frederick Zollo, whom he had previously worked with. Geralmo described his original draft as, quote, a big, passionate, violent detective story set against the greatest sea change in American life in the 20th century the civil rights movement. Zalo freshed it up a bit, and he, along with Geralmo, sold it to Orion Pictures, famous for 1984's Amadeus and 1986's Platoon. The search began for a director. 
Milos Forman and John Schlesinger were both considered for the job. Alan Parker, known for musicals like 1976's Bugsy Malone, 1980s fame, and the eventual hit 1996's Evita, received a copy of the script in September of 1987, and while he acted as a juror for the 1987 Tokyo International Film Festival, colleague Robert F. Colberry began extensively researching the time period and the murders themselves. Parker returned to the United States and dove into the collection of research and ultimately took the job. For legal reasons, names and specific details related to the investigation had to be changed. The focus of the story was often disputed as well, with the final work focusing on two white FBI investigators, one from the South and one from the North, coming to Mississippi to help solve the case. The cast list and their respective inspirations were as follows. Gene Hackman plays Agent Rupert Anderson, inspired by John Proctor. Willem Dafoe plays Agent Alan Ward, inspired by Joseph Sullivan. Brad Dorif plays Deputy Sheriff Clinton Pell, inspired by Cecil Price. Francis McDormand plays Mrs. Pell, inspired by Cecil Price's wife, Connor. Guyard Sartain plays Sheriff Ray Stuckey, inspired by Lawrence Rainey. Jeffrey Knopfs plays the Michael Schwerner character. Rick Seif plays the Andrew Goodman character. And Christopher White plays the James Cheney character. Principal photography began on March 7, 1988 in numerous areas of Mississippi and Lafayette, Alabama. Locations used for filming included the University of Mississippi's Medical Center, which was the actual location the bodies of the activists were transported to, the Cedar Hill Cemetery in historic Vicksburg, and a recreation of a Choctaw Indian village that was made entirely by the art department based on old photographs. Filming concluded on May 14, 1988. Gene Hackman almost quit making violent films after an aggressive clip of him from the film, which he believed to be taken out of context, was shown at the 1989 Oscars. He turned down directing 1991's Silence of the Lambs and almost declined the role of Sheriff Little Bill Daggett in 1992's Unforgiven, which later earned him his second Oscar. Many of the extras participating in Clayton Townley's speech scene were actual members of the KKK and used Klan membership cards as ID to access the set, according to actor Stephen Tobolowski. Director Alan Parker shot the news interviews clips with real Mississippi locals with most of their lines ad-libbed and minor prompting. Parker has said that he grew uncomfortable at times as he was not always sure if the extras were truly acting. A story made the rounds on the set of an overeager extra who introduced himself to Gene Hackman with an exuberant handshake, welcomed him to Mississippi, and invited the actor to family dinner. The encounter was then reported to Alan Parker and staff, but when that extra could not be identified from Castine's mugshots, all extras thought to resemble the miscreant were not called back to set. The film was released on December 9, 1988 and grossed $34.6 million in North American revenue compared to its $15 million budget. It received mixed reviews upon release with many civil rights veterans and the families of the victims criticizing the glossing over of many important details in the story. Others criticized the story focused shifting to white men reacting to prejudice and racism rather than seeing it firsthand from a victim. Despite this, it was nominated for seven Academy Awards, of which it won the award for Best Cinematography. One of the highlights from the film's IMDb trivia page is the story of Alan Parker and his crew whipped up batches of what they called OMD, or Old Man's Dick. This ugly mix of purple, yellow, and brown paint was smothered on every piece of set, chair, tabletop, and prop. They made up a dye and dipped all costumes into it. 
Stephen Tobolowsky, who played Clayton Townley in the film, witnessed the process firsthand and went to the film's premiere expecting to see it on screen. When he did not, Parker ambushed him afterwards and asked him, What did you see? Tobolowsky said he hadn't seen OMD. Parker replied, I didn't ask you what you didn't see, I asked you what you saw. Tobolowsky suddenly realized his eyes were drawn to the black actor's skin. Alan's face turned a lovely red and he said, Right, Tobolowsky is quoted. The only thing OMD didn't touch was human skin. You watch the film and the OMD is invisible, but it gives everything except human skin a dull sameness that makes your eyes look elsewhere to human skin, the most important visual in a film about racism. While this film did inspire the conception of this podcast, Mississippi Burning is not, in my mind, without faults. Throughout the film, there are numerous references to the three activists, but as you may notice, they are never referred to by name, not even in the credits. This was obviously a creative choice used to avoid legal action, but it's almost as if they are all afterthoughts in the making of this film. The movie also suffers from the white savior trope that plagues so many films that seemingly want to give a voice to the overlooked. The biggest roles that a non-white person held are the musical interludes sang by many famous black gospel artists, such as Mahalia Jackson and Roberta Martin. The younger brother of a man accosted by the local clan for being spoken to by Defoe's character comes and goes throughout the narrative and provides a fantastic performance similar to that of Scout Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird. The view of moments like the civil rights movement through a child's eye is always poignant because they are still trying to figure out what the world means. The violence of racism interrupts this development and takes away the aspects of childhood that all kids have the right to. I commend the film for that. The standout scene to me for Mississippi Burning is the opening. Very little dialogue is heard, yet you know the tone and can figure out what exactly is going through the minds of the actors. As former BBC film critic Barry Norman said, the opening is, quote, pure cinema, something no other medium could do so effectively. While IMDb rates it at a 7.8 out of 10 and Metacritic puts it at a 65 out of a 100, I give Mississippi Burning an 8 out of 10. Award-winning investigative reporter Jerry Mitchell was actually inspired by a viewing of Mississippi Burning to investigate old civil rights cases. Mitchell wrote extensively on the cases for six years, gathering new information and revisiting old case files. Mitchell had previously worked on other high-profile civil rights cases such as the murders of Medgar Evers and Vernon Dahmer, as well as the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Barry Bradford, a high school teacher at Stevenson High School in Lincolnshire, Illinois, aided Mitchell in his reinvestigation of the case, along with three of Bradford's students, Allison Nichols, Sarah Siegel, and Brittany Saltiel. The student-teacher team produced a documentary for National History Day and its respective contest. New evidence as well as compelling new reason to reopen the case were presented, as well as an interview with Edgar Ray Killen obtained by Bradford. Thanks to the new evidence found by Bradford's team, Mitchell was able to identify the informant, Mr. X, who helped point the FBI in the direction of the bodies and in the KKK conspiracy. It was revealed to be Maynard King, a Mississippi Highway Patrol officer close to the head of the FBI investigation, who died in 1966 before the trial had even started. All of this work created congressional pressure to act and make a decision on reopening the case. On January 6, 2005, a grand jury in Neshoba County indicted 80-year-old Edgar Ray Killen on three counts of murder. The Mississippi Attorney General prosecuted said case, which became the first time the state had retaliated against the perpetrators of the murders. Later that July, a jury convicted Killen on three counts of manslaughter. 
He was sentenced to three consecutive terms of 20 years in prison. Killing claimed no jury of his peers would have done the same in 1964 based on the presented evidence in his appeal. It was rejected by the Mississippi Supreme Court in 2007, and the case was officially closed on June 20, 2016. Killen died in prison on January 11, 2018, six days before his 93rd birthday. After James Cheney's family moved to New York following his death, his younger brother Ben attended a private high school with a majority all-white student body. In 1969, he joined the Black Panther Party and Black Liberation Army, and a year later, he traveled to Florida with friends to buy guns. The friends killed men in South Carolina and Florida, and he was convicted alongside them for the murder in Florida, serving 13 years before being granted parole. He then founded the James Earl Cheney Foundation in 1998 and has worked as a legal clerk for the former U.S. Attorney General since 1985, the same lawyer who secured his parole. Robert and Carolyn Goodman started the Andrew Goodman Foundation in 1966 to carry on the purpose of their late son's life. After Robert's death in 1969, Carolyn chose to throw herself into the foundation's work, including organizing a 25th anniversary memorial for her son and his friends. The memorial took place at St. John the Divine in New York City and was attended by 10,000 people. It was presided over by then New York Governor Mario Cuomo, Maya Angelou, and Robert Kennedy Jr., among others. Carolyn died in 2007 with the foundation being taken over by Andrew's younger brother David and his wife Sylvia. The originally private foundation decided to further their reach by going public in 2012 and two years later in 2014 launched the Vote Everywhere program that supports college students honoring the legacy of the Freedom Summer's work. A 2,176-foot peak near the town of Tupper Lake, New York in the Adirondack Mountains was officially named Goodman Mountain in Andrew's memory. The family has spent summers in the area for over 30 years. The Walden School that Andrew attended also named its middle and upper school buildings in his memory. Although now owned by the Trevor Day School, the buildings maintain their name. In 2008, Michael Schwerner's hometown of Pelham, New York, renamed a section of Harmer Avenue as Michael Schwerner Way in his honor. Childhood friend Robert Reich, whom I mentioned earlier, has cited Schwerner as his inspiration to, quote, fight the bullies, protect the powerless, and to make sure that the people without a voice be heard. The Cheney Goodman Schwerner Clock Tower of Rosenthal Library on the City University of New York's Queens College campus is named in their memory. And in 2014, all three men received a posthumous Medal of Freedom from President Barack Obama. Thank you so much for listening to Crime Cine. All of the information presented in this episode was gathered from Wikipedia, FBI.gov, MississippiCivilRightsProject.org, and of course, IMDb. The music you've heard throughout the episode was made by my friend Colby. I'll include his SoundCloud link in the description of the episode. I'd like to dedicate this episode to the victims of racist attacks by the Ku Klux Klan, specifically James, Michael, and Andrew, as well as Charles Eddie Moore, Henry Hezekiah D., Herbert Orsby, and the five unidentified individuals that were found during the search for the activist. We can't change history, but we can educate for the future. I'm Melissa Chester, and please be kind and stay enlightened. <laughs>